Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, well, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. All right, thank you, Alison and Kate, for that reading. Awesome to see. Let's get into our sermon for today. Uh, I think last weekend, maybe or maybe the weekend before, uh, Fee and I watched uh, the Taylor Sheridan movie Hell or High Water. Okay, uh, it's it's great. All of Taylor Sheridan's movies are, and it's great because it's complex. Okay, you've got a situation where you've got these brothers who launch uh, into a pretty desperate scheme in order to try and keep their families. Ranch. We've got banks who are bad guys, but we've got the brothers who, even though they start off with some noble pursuits, end up doing some pretty uh, dark things that make you feel at the end of the story like there was never, ever going to be a real winner in this situation. And as much as you like the brothers and as much as you sympathize with them as they go on this journey and understand why they're doing what they're doing, you can't help but feel that there's just no winners to this story. But... 
as I've been thinking about this movie in light of this passage and what some of the ideas that we're going to look at today, I think that there is a way where even when we are in these difficult situations where it doesn't look like there's going to be a winner, we can still uh, find a good outcome if we understand the gospel and know it well and understand how it shapes us so that we see the world not through our natural eyes but with the eyes of faith. So we'll come back to that a little bit later on uh, and some of these ideas there. But what I want to do is... Reset the scene for us, just like Meg did for the kids during Kidspot. Uh, the last time that we were in the book of Genesis, we heard about the death of Abraham. We'd followed Abraham through lots of different uh, wanderings of his across the land, lots of different interactions that he'd had. But we're told at the end of Genesis 25 that after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. I'll give you just a little bit of a sense of where that is. You can see that circle there. Okay, You've got uh, Gerard down the bottom of that circle, just sort of south of Bathsheba, and Beer-Leheroi is just a little bit further south again at the bottom of that circle. That's the, the land here where Isaac is starting from. Okay, So that's sort of where we are where, and where we're up to in the story. And as we work through Isaac's story, we're going to see that there's lots of things that we've kind of seen before, because there's this real sense of Isaac having a lot of the same experiences that his dad had. So I'm just going to run through some of them quickly so you can see just how many of them there are. Okay? We've got Abraham, who faces a famine in the land, and God makes promises to him. Same thing with Isaac. Isaac tries to pass off Rebekah as his sister, just as Abraham did not once, but twice uh, in Egypt and in uh, Gerar as well. Isaac leaves Gerar wealthier than he arrived in this passage, just as Abraham left both Egypt and Gerar loaded by gifts from their kings. Isaac experiences God speaking to him, advising him on conduct, just as he did with Abraham. God promises blessings of land and descendants and being blessings to the nations to Abraham and to Isaac. And as in the Abraham saga, there's disputes over water rights, negotiations with foreign monarchs, ending in covenants of friendship between peoples. So there's lots of echoes in Isaac's story with that of Abraham. And that's not a coincidence. It's deliberate. It's to help us see that just as God was with Abraham and made these promises to him, so too God is with Isaac and these promises are going to continue. So this is the first time that we really sort of put the spotlight on Isaac. It's really the only time that the spotlight is on Isaac himself. But we see here that his family tradition and the history of God with his family is still right there for all to see. Alright, so getting into the passage itself. Like we said, Abraham has passed away and now Isaac is in Beer but there is a famine. Okay, But this is not the first time in the story that we've been here around this uh, area of Gerar because... Abraham had been there about 80 years earlier and also met King Abimelech. Now, we're not sure if it's the same king or not, but either way, we've been here before. And the important thing to know from that previous story is that when Abraham was there, he made a treaty with the people there in the land. It said in Genesis 21, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that, have shown, that I have shown to you. And Abraham said, I swear it. 
Okay, there's a, there's a treaty, there's an agreement between these two peoples to be friendly towards one another, not just for themselves, but also for their descendants. And that sort of sits in the background here as Isaac now faces a famine. Because where do you go when you're in a time of famine? Well, you go towards a people where your family has a history of good relationship and even a treaty between the two of them. And so that's what he does. When he's there, though, it says that the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but live in the land where I tell you to live. Seems like this was on Isaac's mind. He was thinking, I'm going to stop in Gerar for a little bit, but then I'm going to move on to Egypt, because that's where there is still uh, an abundance of the resources that we need to continue to feed our herds and flocks and cattle and all that sort of stuff, right? But God says, no, don't go to Egypt, all right, but rather stay here in the land, and I'll be with you and bless you. goes on. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. You can see it, right? The same promises given to Abraham. Now Isaac is receiving them. And just like his dad, while Isaac is not perfect... When given this command by the Lord, he obeys. He's faithful to listen to the word of God. Abraham was told to go. Isaac is told to stay. But the key thing is that both of them are obedient to God's commands. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That obedience is the one that's particularly being spoken about here. But Isaac too is obeying in what God has given to him. Now, I said, though, that uh, he's not perfect, and while we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, we can hardly skip by the fact that Isaac also makes the same mistake that his dad did. It says here in verse, 20, uh, verse 7 in chapter 26, When the men at that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Apparently this was a real problem back in the day, that both Isaac and Abraham were really worried that having a pretty wife meant that they might die. Okay? Thankfully, in this situation, it doesn't result in Rebekah being handed over to another man or taken away from Isaac. It says when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. In the Hebrew, there's a great play on words there. It says Isaac was Isaacing his wife. It's, it's a fun thing. So, Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. So, Isaac's not perfect. Flaws are full on display here. What's his motivation for lying about Rebecca? It's to preserve his own skin. Even though she clearly was possibly put in danger by this, as Abimelech says. What is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Like I said, by God's grace, Rebecca is not put into the same situation that Sarah was, and that's we can praise God that she didn't have to endure that. But this is obviously still not a great thing, that he has deceived the uh, people that he has a treaty with. And again, Abimelech is gracious to him here in seeking to protect him despite the deception that he's caused. Now, Abimelech is possibly motivated here by not wanting to bring guilt upon his own self. But either way, uh, God is with him in the land here, not just in the protection, but also in the blessing that we see he gets. It says, Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. 
The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He was already a wealthy guy. He was the main heir that inherited all of Abraham's riches, but now, here in the land, his wealth continues to grow, and significantly, he starts to plant crops. Abraham was always a nomadic wanderer. His wealth was in animals, herds, cattle, that sort of stuff. But now we see Isaac, who'd been commanded to stay in the land, start to settle down a little bit, to harvest things for himself. You can sort of see there's this increased sense of we are staying here in this place that God has called us to. But as they say, with no money comes no problems, and there's going to be some issues here for Isaac. But before we get into that, I need to clear up just a little tiny translation thing here with the text to help us understand it well. This is how the verse reads next in the NIV. It said he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. Now the thing is, that little word so there, in English it makes it sound like because the Philistines envied him, they stopped up the wells. But that creates a few problems later on because it seems like the wells have been stopped a second time later on and everything. And it turns out that that little word for so can actually be translated as and, or you could even put it in brackets like the ESV here does. So in the ESV it reads, Isaac had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Side note, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. So I think we've got two separate things here. The wells weren't filled because they were envious, but rather they had already been filled, and now we see the Philistines being envious. And if we read it that way, it just makes a little bit more sense for us as we work through the passage. So, we've got the background information now, the wells have been stopped. We've got the knowledge that the Philistines are envious of Isaac and the wealth that he's received. And now Abimelech says to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. Now this is significant. The key issue here is that Isaac has become too powerful. All right? Abimelech doesn't want him staying in the land now because he perceives him to be a threat. His wealth, the blessing of the Lord, has grown him to a point now where it's an issue for them to keep living in the same land. And it's for this reason that he asks them to move on. Now, Isaac hasn't done anything aggressive. Isaac hasn't talked about trying to conquer the land or anything like that. But Abimelech, seeing his power and wealth, says, move on. And as we're going to see a little bit later, Isaac definitely takes this as an act of hostility towards him. Nevertheless, despite his wealth, despite his power, Isaac agrees to move on. He had a claim on the land. He's planting crops there. He's a wealthy guy. He had choices. But he chooses to take this loss and move on and find a new place to go to. So it says, Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up, stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Isaac moves on, but he knows his father's history in the land, and he goes back to some of those places that they would have been when he was a boy, redigs the wells, and attempts to settle in that place. But he's got some troubles. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Asek, because they contended with him. Asek means dispute. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna, which means opposition. Right? Isaac is trying to make a place for himself in the land that God had told him to stay. This was the place that God had called him to. He's trying to be obedient to God, but as he's doing so, as he's trying to set up to care for the, the flocks and the herds and his family, he keeps on hitting these barriers and obstacles in the form of others there who are disputing and quarreling with him. Now again, he's a wealthy guy. He had options. But rather than try and claim them for himself, despite the fact that you know, he might have even had a claim on some of this land because of the treaty that goes back with his father Abraham, he lets it go and instead continues to seek another space. So he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we should be fruitful in the land. Isaac is trusting God that he's been called to stay in the land, and rather than try and conquer the land by having these battles and win these disputes, and even though he's a man of means, he continues to seek a place where there is space for them. That's what Rehoboth means, a broad space or make room, something like that. And so he's willing, despite his power, despite his wealth, to take some losses here to be obedient to the Lord. And you can see that he's been trusting the Lord from the, the verse there where it says that when he found this place that the Lord gave to them, he said, the Lord has made room for us. Isaac was believing and trusting that God was in control of what was happening here, and it was in him that he's trusting as he keeps moving around the place. Then it says, from there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you, confirming what Isaac has been trusting in. Isaac's been trusting that it's the Lord who's given them this space, and now the Lord appears and says, indeed, I am with you. And if you don't say to somebody, don't be afraid, okay, unless there's reason to fear. Now, maybe it's because you know God is speaking to him, and that's always a scary sort of idea, or maybe it's the trouble and, and situation that he's found himself in. But either way, the Lord is promising that he's with him. And he says, I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. The promises that I gave to your dad are now also with you. It says, Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Again, Isaac is clearly trusting in the Lord here. It's the Lord that he seeks to worship when blessings come upon him. Now it says, meanwhile... Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Now, this is interesting, right? These are the same guys that sent him away. And Isaac's a little bit curious about this as well. He says to him, Why have you come to me since you are hostile to me and sent me away? And they answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, so that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well, sent you away peacefully, and now you are blessed by the Lord. People like might be playing a little fast and loose with the truth here. You know, we sent you away peacefully. Isaac didn't feel too much peace. He felt a little hostility in that move there. And it certainly seems like you were worried about me, which is why you sent me away. But hey, What's Isaac going to do in the face of these guys who he's taken an unkindness from, but now possibly because they've continued to, again, see him grow in wealth, 
grow in power and might have rethought their decision to send him in the way in the way that they did, thinking, oh, we really don't want this guy to be our enemy. But what will Isaac do? Well, Isaac made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other, then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. So it's, it's just a fascinating little collection of events. I think when, when you read it, at, at first glance, you're like, why are we, do we... Apparently, wells were really important to these guys in the Old Testament. There's just wells everywhere. We're always talking about wells. But what's clear here is that we're seeing a pattern of behavior with Isaac. He's not perfect. He's flawed. He messed up with what he did with Rebecca, put her in danger, that clearly. But at the same time, he's flexible and hardworking and innovative. He, he makes these moves in the land. He's willing to, to move his people, but then he's also willing to change it up and, and, make, uh, and plant crops when the Lord says to stay. When he has issues with the Bimelech, he's willing to you know, move on from there. Okay, if this is not what the Lord has for me, then I'm going to let this one go. He gets into disputes and quarrels with people that he's probably more powerful than, certainly more wealthy than, and yet instead of trying to win that battle, win that fight, conquer the land, he says, okay, the Lord has said to stay. I'll trust him to make space for us, and he keeps trusting in the Lord's plans for him all the way through. And it, it, I just can't help but you know, pick up on, on the fact that here that there seems to be this split between how we typically, as people, would see this situation when somebody's conflicting with us, disputing with us, quarrelling with us, and we have a, a fair claim to the places and things that God has given to us, and how we might approach that, and yet the way that Isaac continually to let it go, to lose the fight, to lose the argument, to lose their croplands, to lose all these different things, and keep trusting in the Lord. So, let's have a, a, a look at this. So, so, just to finish off the passage there, they call it uh, the Sheba, which means oath, is in, rec- in recognition of the, the treaty that was sworn there. Anytime we look at the Old Testament, uh, we want to ask ourselves a few questions. What does the text teach me about God? How does it point me to Jesus? And how does this passage teach me to live in light of the cross of Christ? And that's what we're going to do now. We'll work through each of them. So first up, uh, about God, I think it shows us really clearly he is faithful. He's been faithful to keep his promises to Abraham. He's been faithful to be with him in the land. He's now faithful to be with Abraham's son, Isaac, the child of the promise. He said that the same blessings, the same promises that I made to your dad are going to be yours. We start to see how these are being fulfilled through Isaac. These are all there with him. And so we've got a sense there in which God is faithful. Don't fear, I'm with you. All right? this is, God has decreed that this is the family he's going to work through in the world, and he's with him throughout. So first up, we see that God is faithful. Is there something in this passage that points us towards Jesus? Well, I think Isaac does. We've seen Isaac point us towards Christ in a really strong way previously when he was the promised one who was willing to be sacrificed by his father with the hope of resurrection. That was like a really clear, direct connection to Jesus. But here I think we see some similar things. We've got Isaac obeying the Lord to be in a certain place at a certain time He's seeking to be obedient to him, but he's facing trials and challenges and quarrels and disputes and opposition along the way, and he's willing to keep letting go of those things in order to trust in the Lord so that his plans might be fulfilled. And I can't help but think about the way that Jesus, despite the fact that he was also a very powerful figure, was willing to take lots of losses on the way to being obedient to the plan that God had for him. 
Some of you might remember these verses. They're some of my, my favorite ones. It's, such a, it's like the ultimate flex in the history of flexes here from Jesus in Matthew uh, when he is arrested. It says that uh, after Judas has betrayed him, the men that were with Jesus, sorry, with Judas, stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus is saying to everyone there, I know this looks right now, okay, as though you are in control, as though you have the power, but here's the thing, I'm operating in accordance with God's plan so the scripture can be fulfilled, and if I wanted to, I could call down hundreds and hundreds of angels to deal with this situation. My wealth, my power, beyond anything you can imagine, but I'm going to take this loss because this is the Father's plan for me. And I think that there's something here in what Isaac's doing. He wasn't told to stay and conquer the land. How easy would it have been for Isaac to take this command from the Lord to stay in the land and hear it as wipe out your enemies, dominate this land, control it. But that wasn't the command that he was given. He was told to stay in the land and he keeps trusting in the Lord despite the opposition he faces until the Lord makes room for him. And I think that it's easy to read this story and even sort of miss this because this just goes against the values of our world today so strongly. But it's really clearly what Jesus taught. Think about Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The idea that if you're wronged in one particular way, you, you extract the same penalty or hurt against the person who did it to you. But Jesus says, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, forces, there's not a voluntary thing, forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I don't have time to go into it fully, but but these would have been humiliating and embarrassing things for a person to do back then. It's not just giving more than what you're being asked for. It's adding to your own humiliation. To be slapped and not respond in any way, but to offer your other cheek also. To have your shirt stripped away from you and then take my coat so I'm, I'm naked before you. Jesus, when dealing with this issue of a person being wronged, doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say strike them down. He says offer them your other cheek also. And this is just so against our culture, right? Like in that movie that I was talking about earlier, the reason that we can go with these brothers who are you know, robbing banks and all this sort of stuff, despite the fact uh, that they're doing some dark things and that sort of thing, the reason we can go with them and we like them and empathize with them is because they've been wronged. There's this sense here that even though they're doing the wrong thing, they were wronged first, and so morally we kind of feel like, eh, maybe it's kind of weighing itself up until it doesn't. But see, that's how we look at the world. We think, you know, in, we think about injustice in terms of scales and balance and this sort of stuff, and there's some truth in that, but the point is, is that when we look at things through the eyes of the gospel, we don't think first in terms of 
fighting and quarrelling and winning, we think in terms of losing graciously and being willing to even suffer embarrassment and defeat. Now, I think that because this is such a strange idea, and I feel like that some of you at home there, and you're already trying to think of counter-arguments to this, because you don't like the idea of losing, I'm going to have to push a little bit further, so bear with me. When we look at what Isaac does here, what's the reason that he's able to lose and move on? It's because he's really wealthy, right? Like, that's made abundantly clear to us. Isaac's not in a desperate situation. Some of you might jump up and say, you know, aha, see, if you're going to lose graciously in this world, he's not really losing because he had all this power and wealth and really it was an inconvenience, he's not really losing out, all that sort of stuff. But the thing is, is that Jesus had all the power in the world and I don't think I'd want to discount the sacrifice that he made and the loss that he took just because he knew he was going to rise from the dead. But also I think the important thing for us to grasp here is just because we don't have the same sort of wealth that Isaac had, just because we don't necessarily have lands and cattle and herd and wealth that we, we would think would be comparable to him, that doesn't mean that we're without wealth. See, that's the important thing for us to grasp here. We, as Christians, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We're adopted into God's family. We, we can enter into the throne room of God to bring our needs and requests before him. We are blessed beyond our wildest dreams in Christ. And so when we face loss here in this world, we don't do so as the, the, the powerless and those with nothing. We, we do so as the wealthy. See, if a pauper comes up and smacks the king on his face, it's not a sign of his strength if he crushes that pauper back. It's a sign of his strength when he takes that offense and he responds graciously and kindly because the king understands all of the privileges and power that he has, that he's not threatened or made insecure or put down by the act of his opponent. Isaac here trusted in the Lord. He stayed in the land. His faith was in God. His faith wasn't in good relationship with Abimelech or being thought of as a great man or anything like that. It's surprisingly absent from this Isaac's you know, concern for himself in that sense. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the command that he'd been given. And yes, he was wealthy, which enabled him to do it, but the point is that so are we. Jesus could endure the slings and the arrests and the offenses and the, the quarreling and the disputes with him because he was the wealthy one. And in Christ, so too are we. We can endure slings and offenses and we can lose disputes and quarrels and, and, and even take the, the higher ground and move on even though we might have a claim to something because we're wealthy in Christ. Now, last thing. Some of you will point to things like when Jesus slipped over the tables in the temples and say, but Jesus fought back, didn't he? I'd say, yeah, sure. But when he was doing that, it wasn't because of personal offense. It wasn't because he had been hurt. It wasn't because somebody had come after him. It's because he was defending God's truth. It's because he was attacking a, a blasphemy against God. And even then, he wasn't attacking the people. He was overturning tables to make a point. So there's, there's a time for arguing, there's a time for debating, there's a time for appealing, there's a, there's a time for us to enter into these things, but it's not because we've been personally offended. It's not out of a place of insecurity or perceived weakness, it's out of a place of, because we're strong in the Lord, we will stand up for him. 
But that's different from just defending our rights, seeking our freedoms, seeking things for ourselves. So I want to encourage us this week. By the power of God's Spirit in us, we can lose well if we have to. We can take the loss. Because Jesus did it. Because we see Isaac do it in this passage, and the reason we can do it is because we are so wealthy in Christ that we know that we are eternally safe with him and that nothing can compare to the riches that we have in him. Let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you so much for the incredible wealth that we have in Christ. Thank you that you have blessed us abundantly in the spiritual realms, that we have eternal life with you now and forever. We pray, Father, that we would not operate as weak and poor in spirit, but rather, Lord, we would walk as those who have been adopted into God's family, that we could bear loss and offense and embarrassment, disgrace, quarrels, disputes, insults in this world, graciously, so that people would know that the Lord is with us and so we might love and serve you well. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.